While you're turning to Nehemiah 2, I can tell you I'm doing much better. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to, to thank you for taking care of me and Natalie uh, last weekend, uh, from the text messages of encouragement to checking on us, saying, hey, do y'all need anything? Uh, the boudin, the, the Gatorade, all the stuff that we needed to survive, uh, our house arrest with the, the flu. Um, we're very appreciative of that, so I want to I thank you all for that. It's, it's always nice when you're sick and you have someone to care for you. Uh, so, very grateful for you. Uh, I always like to, uh, you know, give you some reading material if I'm referencing something. Uh, this morning, go hand in hand with the Merge Conference. I'm going to be referencing this book, When Helping Hurts. If you're on the Kenya team, uh, you're going to be getting a copy of this. So the church has got that covered for you. Uh, but this is something that uh, I would recommend. It's When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. Uh, I'm going to be referencing this book today, but it's, it's very good. Uh, it'll open your eyes if you have not. There's a lot of things we think about, and we're going to touch on it this morning as far as helping people and doing good and helping, helping the poor specifically in this case that we don't realize sometimes the harm that we're causing with good intentions behind it. So it's a very helpful resource. I'm going to reference that later today, but it's something that you might want to check into. I'll start off with a question. Have you ever felt defeated? You know, like, if you have, you know what I'm talking about. You're drowning in this uh, feeling of misery of self-pity, defeat. A light-hearted story for you. Uh, I immediately think back to high school. Uh, and I guess I'll do this at the expense of my own pride and humiliate myself. But uh, I, I'm a hopeless romantic. So, uh, in high school, there was a girl, let's call her Kelsey, it's not a real name, but it's close, uh, who I had a crush on. She, we went to church together, eighth grade, I saw her, I was like, man, who is this girl? She's really pretty. And then I just saw her, you know, in church and like, okay, she's passionate about the Lord. That's, that's the kind of girl that I, I want to marry one day, right? So, I... Ended up going to the same school as her in high school. Started pursuing her my freshman year. And it got, you know, we were friends. We all had the same group of friends. And then by the summer of freshman year, right going into my sophomore year, we started talking. And we talked for a good four, five, six months. And, you know, we never did anything on our own. We, you know, her parents were very strict. And, like, you're not going to go on dates. You're going to. You're going to do group dating. And so that's, my parents probably didn't care, but, you know, that's, that's what I did because that's what her parents said, so, which was fine with me. We all hung out together, and, you know, after a while, I was like, we're, we're not even dating, okay? <laughs> She's the one. That's it. 16 years old, don't have a car, don't have a license, but I know who I'm going to marry. Well... She read a book, terrible book. Don't read this book. It's got some helpful. Uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Josh Harris. 
So as the, as the guy pursuing the girl that read that book, that did not go well. She, I found out through my best friend, he's like, hey man, so-and-so told me she's not that into you anymore. I was like, you know, I've kind of noticed that lately. So being the upstanding young man that I was, I said, all right, well, we're going to go hash this out. I don't have a car. Ryan, can you drive me over to her house so I can go talk to her? And he did. And I said, what's up? And she's like, you know, I just don't think God's kind of shown me a lot lately, and I'm not supposed to date right now. Okay. The God card. I can't argue with that, right? So I went home miserable. Side note, she dated somebody two weeks later. But I was defeated. I went home, and I'm just like, I'm telling my mom, I'm like, mom. I'm a 6'1", 225-pound defensive lineman, and I'm like, Mom, I'm never going to get married. But I was defeated. I was miserable, drowning in self-pity. See, the thing is, like, not only did we end that, but she was still my friend. We still had the same group of friends. We have classes together. So as the immature 16-year-old male that I was, every time I was around her, I was like, mm, pouting. I mean, I literally would go to sleep. I, I was a good student. But for this, like, three-month time of my life, I would go to sleep in the classes that I had with her. I wanted her to see me. I wanted her to see that I was miserable, that she had caused this. I was defeated. And no matter what anyone said to me, it didn't work. People, I mean, were trying to encourage me. They had noticed my body language. They had noticed my activity. I would go home. I would go to practice. I'd do the things I was supposed to do. At that point, I was in basketball. I'd do that, all that stuff. She was a cheerleader, so I couldn't be, like, too energetic because she would see me. And then I would go home, and I would go to sleep. I had an English teacher one day pull me out in the classroom. It, it was a great time to go through this feeling because we were in the poetry unit of my sophomore English class. And I was, I mean, my, my grades for poetry, she was sharing it with all the English teachers down the hallway. Like all, They all knew who David Morris was because he was the guy writing all this beautiful poetry. She pulled me out in the hallway in tears. David, you've got to stop doing this to yourself. You're going through this over a girl. There's plenty of beautiful girls in the school. Why? That feeling is what Nehemiah is stepping into when we go into our passage this morning. Because we're going to follow Nehemiah from Persia, and he's going to go into Jerusalem. And that's the kind of feeling these people have. They are defeated and have been defeated for centuries. So I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this. Because so easily we're going to be able to identify with Nehemiah, the hero of the story. But there's another group of people that we have to keep in mind. Brief recap of what we've seen so far. Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4, God invaded Nehemiah's comfortable life. 
He broke his heart for the state of God's people and for the city. Then in Nehemiah 1, 5 through 11, Nehemiah responds in prayer, and we looked at how he prayed. He started off with praise to God, then confessing his own sins and the sins of his people. And then he started recounting the promises of God so that his heart would be aligned with God's heart. And then like at the very end of that prayer was his request, praying for an opportunity. And we use that to reflect on our own prayer life, whereas our prayer life starts off with this much request from the beginning, and maybe we'll throw in some praise. Maybe we'll throw in some, God, align my heart with yours, but most of the time it's, God, align your heart with mine. And then in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, after four months of actively waiting and mourning in prayer and preparation and planning, God provides Nehemiah with the opportunity to go. The, the king granted him his request to, to leave Persia, to go to Jerusalem, and to rebuild. Today, as we travel with Nehemiah to Jerusalem, as he begins to restore the city and the dignity of the people, I've broken it down into five sections, and because it's so many, I'm not going to, you know, typically I'll go through and say, you'll see this, 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 and this. I'll point it out as we get there, and because it's so much there, I'll give some minor points of application as we move along, but I, I want to recap it at the end and see the big picture. I don't want you to miss out on what God is communicating about himself and his, his character and his nature. So starting off in Nehemiah 2, verses 9 through 10, the first point in our outline is Nehemiah's travels. He said, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. After getting the king's approval to, to leave and to go to Jerusalem, Nehemiah does just that. He goes. He leaves the, the Persian winter capital city of Susa, and he travels approximately 800 to 900 miles. Now, there was a straight shot that he could have gone maybe about 500 miles, but more than likely, he's going to follow, that was like a desert land. He's going to follow a fertile crescent that will get him there, 800 to 900 miles. It would have taken him approximately three to four months. So to give you an idea of the timing, by the time he gets to Jerusalem, it's been eight months since God broke his heart. Eight months now. He goes through the province known as Beyond the River, referring to this, this area of land that is west of the Euphrates. So for you, Nehemiah is traveling west. And so he gets over the Euphrates River, and there's this region that's only known to the Persians as beyond the river. As he travels throughout the region, he, he comes to a city. He provides the governors of the city with the king's letters that he had requested. Recall from uh, Nehemiah 2.7, Nehemiah said, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. 
So with the king's letters of support, Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, but he didn't travel with just letters. King Artaxerxes gave him an army of protection. It says that he, he sent him with the officers of the army, high-ranking military personnel and horsemen, additional military personnel. It, it shows us how valuable Nehemiah was to the king. This is his prized servant. You remember, when Nehemiah said, hey, I want to go do this, he said, okay, how long is it going to take? Nehemiah, having already planned, said, okay, it's going to take this long. The king wants him to come back. So he protects him on his journey by giving him an army. Then we find out why. Why Nehemiah asked for the letters. Why the king felt compelled to, 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 to send him with an army. More importantly, we see how God has providentially provided protection for Nehemiah as he goes. God is at work here, and he's working through King Artaxerxes. We're introduced to the opposition, individuals that would have otherwise prevented Nehemiah from completing his journey. Sinballat was from a city in Moab, and Tobiah was an Ammonite. There is some deep-rooted hatred here that these guys grew up with for the people of Israel. They, they are part of two people groups, two of many, that God drove out of the promised land for this nation. They hate them. So when they see that someone is traveling to seek the well-being of these people, they're greatly displeased. But God had moved the heart of King Artaxerxes to see value in his servant, to protect him, to give him letters that would allow him to pass through. God is providentially caring for him. God is at work here. The second point in our outline, and we see Nehemiah's rest in verse 11. It's just a short sentence. It says, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. This is one of those verses that we might easily skip over. We're just, he's just giving us a date reference. He gets there, and he's there for three days. But consider this. Let's say God breaks your heart, and he moves you to compassion. And you actively wait, like Nehemiah did, mourning, praying, planning for four months, get the king's approval, you get sent, you gather the resources, right, the timber that the king was providing, and you make your journey. Probably takes another three to four months, so eight months in total. What do you do when you get there? I feel like what we may be inclined to do is we're on a mission. It's just a wall. We're going to build a wall and restore the gates. That's what we're going for. I've been looking forward to this now for eight months. When I get there, let's get to work. That's not what Nehemiah does. He says he was there for three days. We've already seen that Nehemiah has displayed patience, but even upon arrival, he rests. Ezra did something similar. In Ezra chapter 8, verse 15, he said, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. 
Later on in chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, he says, Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy in ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. We see this pattern of waiting and resting for three days prior to working. Now, I don't want to put too much emphasis on this because it's just a minor point of application. I don't think that's what the authorial intent is here. But I do think it's worth noting that rest is necessary. We're not superhuman. Now, to be clear, this isn't a season of rest. I've heard people say, I'm in a season of rest now. What is that? These guys rested for three days. That's not a season. Oh, I'm in a season. This past year, two, three, four years, I just really needed to rest because I was burned out. That's not what we're talking about here. But it is important as a leader to rest. I've been reminded of that in the past couple weeks. You get a stomach virus one morning, you lose four pounds over the course of 24 hours. It takes about four days for your body to recover from the, the, the trauma that your body goes through. And then find out you got the flu right after that. And what does the doctor say? You need rest. Rest is necessary. Why did he rest? Well, he just traveled. I guarantee you, for the Kenya team, what you're going to see happen to me when we get there is I'm going to be pretty useless. Maybe I can sleep on the plane. Maybe. It didn't happen last time. But when we got there, I, I, I can't go play with the kids right now. I'm useless. I need rest. Now, once you're rested, then, then move. Like, this isn't like, I'm going to rest for a week, two, three, four weeks, and then it turns into a year. But rest is necessary. But then also, there's more to it to Nehemiah's rest. He wasn't just like relaxing on the beach. This is where our passage starts to take shape. There's more to Nehemiah's rest because what we see is he was spending time with the people. And then in verses 12 through 16, we see the third point in our outline, Nehemiah's secret inspection. He said, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. This whole section is filled with this secretive thing. After three days of resting, Nehemiah gets up in the secret of the night, and he sneaks off into the city. 
He says that he hadn't told anyone what God had compelled him to do, why he was there. And no one knew where he had run off to that night, not the Jews, not the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anybody else. Why? Why was he keeping this a secret? I mean, eight months of prayer, eight months of planning, preparation, travel, he's there. Why is he not going into all the tents and laying out, hey, this is why I'm here, this is what we're going to do? True to form, Nehemiah displays patience. He gets out at night, and he travels around the southern portion of the wall. If you're looking at a map, and I, I couldn't find a really good one that would show up, but it's, it would have started off in this valley, the valley gate, and he would have traveled around the southern part of the wall, cut across by the pool, and then come back home. He goes from the valley gate to the dragon spring to the, I'm sure, upscale part of town, the dung gate to the fountain gate, to the king's pool and back. And as he moves around inspecting this wall, he's seeing the damage firsthand that has occurred. See, Nehemiah has a goal. His goal is to restore the dignity of Jerusalem. And in order to do that, he knows he's got to rebuild the wall and the gates. But in order to effectively lead others in accomplishing that goal, he has to have clarity and the plans to achieve that goal. He has to understand what the problem truly is, not just the symptoms. You see, a lot of harm can come from good goals and good intentions if you don't have a clear, effective plan. You can actually cause more hurt when you haven't gone out and walked the wall line when you haven't seen and understood the damage that has been done and considered the people that have been affected. In the preface to that book, When Helping Hurts, one of the co-authors, Brian Fickert, says one of the convictions he has that has tempered his excitement about the church getting involved in poverty alleviation is that this very idea that we're examining in Nehemiah. He says many observers, including Steve and I, believe that when North American Christians do attempt to alleviate poverty, the methods used often do considerable harm both to both the materially poor and the materially non-poor. Our concern is not just that these methods are wasting human, spiritual, financial, and organizational resources, but that these methods are actually exacerbating the very problems they are trying to solve. So often God puts something in our hearts to do, a goal, and we rush straight forward to accomplish that goal. We want to work to complete it. But we never spend time to truly understand the problems, the issues, and consider an effective way to achieve the desired results. Now, I know for some of you, just hearing those words rubs you the wrong way. Because where you are is you are tired of planning. You are tired of sitting around in a room and having people discuss, how can we do this? All in the sake of efficiency and effectiveness. And I get that, but I would caution you because just rushing straight into it can cause a lot of harm, not only to others, but to yourself because that mentality can result in you thinking you've got to do something. 
rather than allowing God to work through you to accomplish His goals. And then for others, the more analytical type, man, this point of application is where we thrive. We love to plan, to think, how can this be efficient? How can this be effective? I would caution you as well. Because what we often mistake as effective planning is really just procrastination. What we often mistake as patience is really fear. What we often consider as efficiency is really just figuring out a way that we're not inconvenienced. Easy. That's not what we see in Nehemiah's example. He does show patient restraint, but he also gets involved. He spends time with the people, understanding their condition, their state of mind. He inspects the damage done to the wall. Even at one point, getting down from his horse so he can walk because the horse couldn't pass through. I mean, of all places, he goes and visits the dung gate, the place where the waste is thrown. He gets dirty. When I look out into the faces of Sulphur Community Church, I see a people who want to make much of God in our neighborhood. But church, that's not going to happen if we don't get out and live with the neighborhood. It's not going to happen if we don't understand the, the problems, not the symptoms of our neighbors. doesn't happen unless we're willing to get off our high horses and spend some time by the dung gate, the part of town where nobody wants to go. It's more than just meeting in a school on a Sunday morning. It's a good start. But Nehemiah did more than that. So we start to see how Nehemiah rested. He spent time with the people, and then he goes out on this inspection. He wants to know the problems, considers how it might be taken care of. He doesn't go in with a plan and say, this is how we're going to do it. He needs to spend time understanding it. And then, in the fourth point of our outline, he issues an invitation. This is Nehemiah's invitation in verses 17 through 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. I love what Nehemiah does here. Nehemiah doesn't just come on the scene and say, hey guys, you're in trouble, but don't worry about it. I've got you covered. I'm going to take care of you. After spending time understanding the people and the issues they face, Nehemiah approaches them and says, you see the trouble we are in. He includes himself in their plight. And he can do so because he's left the comfort of the palace and he's now living in that city that is fully exposed. He's in the trouble. He's in the shame. 
And then he issues his invitation. He says, come on with me. Let's build this wall together so that we may no longer suffer shame. If you've been around here for a little while and been exposed to our community outreach methods and been exposed to the ministries of SC3, you can kind of relate to what's going on here. You can identify what Nehemiah is doing. He is employing an empowerment model of ministry. He isn't just coming on the scene and saying, hey, I'm going to help you. I'm going to do something that you could do because that would cause more harm. That would just further the problem of their dependency upon other people. And it would continue to remove their own dignity. Instead, Nehemiah says, hey, we're in trouble. You see it. Let's do this together. You be a part of the solution. Now, I asked you earlier, have you ever felt completely defeated? You know, I shared the story of Kelsey. My hopeless romanticism worked eventually, but I was defeated in that time of my life. Some of you are thinking, I'm there now. I feel defeated now. Well, then you can easily relate with these people. For others, if you have, go back to that time and try to remember how you felt. Were there people around you that were trying to encourage you, that were trying to build you back up? What kind of things did they say? Did it work? Because he, it's not like Nehemiah said, hey, let's go build the wall. And they were like, yeah, let's go, let's go do it. It may seem that way if we just give a cursory glance over this. But notice what happens before. Because the truth is, when we have experienced defeat, it's very difficult for someone to speak life into us. Their words fall on deaf ears. Their actions are ignored or at best misinterpreted. Instead, Nehemiah encourages them with the news of the work of God in his life. He says that he told them how God's hand had been with him. What he does is he takes them back eight months. Hey, guys, this is what happened. I was having a normal day. Some guys came back from here and told me what was happening, what your condition was. God broke my heart that day. For four months, I was weeping, mourning, praying for God to give me an opportunity to come here and make a difference. Then God provided that opportunity. He says that he told them about what the king had done, the king's words. He tells them how the king gave him letters to say, yes, go. Not only that, but that he provided the timber and that he sent him with an army. God has been at work, guys. It's not just man's words that they're responding to. They're responding to the, the truth of what God is doing. See, that provides life to people who are dead. That brings people from darkness into light. It gives people who are living in shame a hope. And it is in this truth that the people of Jerusalem begin to rise from the ruins. They're coming back to life. It's after they've heard of God's faithfulness that they are strengthened 
despite their current condition. That hasn't changed. But they're hearing about what God is doing. And they say, let us rise up from the ashes of defeat and let's build. Come, let us build. So Nehemiah is empowering the people of Jerusalem. And then lastly, we see Nehemiah's defense. Because when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem, this new guy that we'll see later on, of, of, of Arab or the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you were, you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. God is using Nehemiah as an agent of reconciliation, an agent of restoration. And sometimes as agents of reconciliation and restoration, we are called to defend those who are oppressed. These enemies of Jerusalem hear about the positive momentum going on in Jerusalem, and they hate that, so they start mocking them out of hatred. They want to keep them under their thumb. They say, what do you silly Jews think you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, we know that there is no rebellion here, that in fact the king is fully supporting this. We talked about our class with Bible study methods. You have to read certain ways, and this is what we read apophatically, which is a big, long, fancy word to say what's not there. Well, what's not here? How does Nehemiah respond? Does he say, actually, no, the king's given me letters. The king's given me timber. The king sent me with an army. The king is behind this. We're not rebelling against the king. Is that how he responds? Why not? Why doesn't he respond that way? What does he do instead? Instead of pointing to the king, he points to the glory of God. He says the God of heaven, which is a familiar title that Nehemiah uses throughout this book, will make us prosper. When Sembalat, Tobiah, and Geshem are mocking these people, what they don't realize is that they're actually mocking God. That God is behind this, not a people. Nehemiah, as the agent of reconciliation, defends the people. No doubt this has happened to them many times. Anytime that they start to stand up for themselves, their enemies come in and oppress them, mock them, jeer at them. Hey, this is an impossible task. What do you think you're doing? Why are you wasting your time? Nehemiah comes in and he says, no. The God of heaven is at work here, and we will prosper, and we will rebuild, and you are not going to hold us back any longer. He's able to do that because Nehemiah has been convinced in the fullness of his heart and the clarity of mind that God is behind this, that God is doing this work. So he tells these guys to mind their own business. You have no jurisdiction here. You have no civil or religious claim to this city. Get out. I love that. 
It's like the kid who stands up against the bully. Not going to happen anymore. So we've seen Nehemiah's travels as God providentially cared for him. And then we saw this whole thing, this model of empowerment ministry, as Nehemiah takes his time and he rests, spends time with the people, inspects the wall, understands what the problem is. And then he invites them to be part of the solution and stands up against those who would prevent it from happening. That's what Nehemiah does. What is God doing? What do we see about who God is here? I think what we see is that God is a transformational God. God takes things that are broken, ruined, and restores them. It's who God is. He he takes people who are in darkness and brings them to light. He takes people that have are hopeless and gives them a hope. He is constantly taking people from the ruins and bringing them into his glory. That's what God's doing. He did it there in Jerusalem. For those of us who are believers, I think we can identify with that, that it happened in our own personal, individual lives, that we who were once ruined by our depravity, that we were broken with sexual immorality, with pride, anxiety, that God has taken us from that and he's restored us. God takes things and makes them new. And that's what we're seeing here in Nehemiah. Some, pi- some final points of application that we can draw from that big truth, the big picture. Some of us are in ruins right now. You can identify with this feeling of defeat. I want to offer you some encouragement. God has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten you. Don't forget the fact that you exist so that he might glorify himself, that he might make himself known, and he will do that while you're in the ruins. Now, I don't want to give you any false hope. There is no promise that that will ever go away in this life. You may spend your life in the ruins so that God would make himself known through you. That's a reality. Now, let's continue to pray and ask God to deliver us from that. But if you're there, God can still use you. See, we forget about all these people that died and didn't get to see all this happen. There were people that once the, the, the temple was built, the city wasn't restored. They didn't get to see that. They spent their whole lives in ruins. Did God glorify himself in them? Absolutely. I'm very careful not to give you this false hope that God says he's going to give you everything you ask for in this life. That's not going to happen. But what he does promise is that there will be a day where there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. There is a greater hope that we are striving for. 
That exists. And one day you're going to find yourself reigning alongside the king. And all this other stuff that's happened where you were in the ruins won't matter. That's just a blip on the radar of eternity. God exists in our lives to make himself known. So if that's you, I want to encourage you, persevere. Persevere. And then look around you, because there are brothers and sisters in this room who are here to walk through that with you. Do not withdraw from them. Don't pull back. Don't avoid that. Because you're going to need them. You're going to need somebody like Nehemiah to come alongside you and say, hey, let's go. Let's, let's build the wall together. You're going to need somebody to defend you. To go to the Lord in prayer on your behalf. You need that. Our tendency is when we're, we're in shame, when we're in trouble, we kind of withdraw to ourselves. We don't want anybody to see that part of us. Continue to fight against the enemy. Some of us, rather the rest of us, who don't find ourselves there, we need to go there. We need to leave our palaces of comfort and spend some time with our brothers and sisters who are in the ruins. We need to go spend some time by the dung gate. As fun as that sounds. We need to get our hands and feet dirty so that we might be able to reach our neighbors with the gospel. We know that God desires his name to be, to be known by all people. We exist so that we might glorify God. That, that is, that's a fancy term that we like to throw out there, but that is to make him known. To glorify God is to manifest, to put on display who he is. And what have we seen this morning? God is a transformational God where he's bringing people from light, from darkness to light. People from ruins. Now, this is not saying that we want to take people from the trailer park to the lake house. That's not what we're saying here. But there's some restoration that's needed. And so if we're going to make God known and we see this is God's character, shouldn't we be working towards that end? Reconciliation, restoration, physical, spiritual, that goes hand in hand. Much like Nehemiah issued an invitation to the people of Jerusalem, I'm doing that this morning. God is doing something right now in our city. The end goal of that is not to benefit people. It is to make God known. Every time God restores something, what he is saying is, I am God. In the restoration and reconciliation of people, God will be made known because that's who he is. God started by breaking the hearts of some of us. Then there was this period of time where it was prayer, planning, trying to gain clarity of what this would look like, resting when needed, getting to work, and now what we see is that vision that was clearly understood is now being multiplied to a people in this room. So if you find yourself in the ruins, my invitation to you is to 
come along with us. God's hand has been on us for good. We've had many challenges. We've had much opposition. But God is at work here. Nehemiah had the support of a king. We've got the support of a principal. God has shown himself over and over and over again. So let us build up a wall. Because you see, we're in trouble. Our city is in ruins. The souls of our neighbors are suffering in the ashes of defeat from the destruction of the enemy. So let's build up a wall around that to protect protect ourselves and to protect them by glorifying Jesus Christ, by reflecting him to our neighbors. Ultimately, we look to Christ because he is the greatest example of restorative work in the history of creation. Christ left the comfort of the eternal glory with his Father, and he came into our destruction. He came into our defeat. He walked with man. He experienced pain, suffering, sadness. He was homeless, hated, hungry. And he experienced all of that so that he might reconcile us, restore us to our Creator. He went to the cross on our behalf, took on the punishment that we deserved. He defended us. He took that upon himself. And then most glorious of all, he conquered Satan. He conquered death. He rose from the dead. And in so doing, he is resurrecting a people to himself. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted in that truth, I would encourage you to surrender to him, to follow Jesus. Because in him you will find hope. In him you will find love and peace everlasting. You will find in him someone who understands what you're going through. Someone who is worth trusting your entire existence with. If you want to surrender to him today, I would encourage you to get with me or Blake after the service. We're not going to ask you to do anything embarrassing and walk in front of a bunch of people. Just come talk to us. The rest of us, let's consider how we might put this into practice. How might we show the character of God in restoration? What does that look like? That can, application can mean a bunch of different things for all of us. For some of us, it may be moving into the ruins. I pray that it would. I pray that that's what it looks like. I mean, you saw Mark and Callie. You heard their story last week. God broke their hearts. He moved them to compassion, past sympathy, where they desired to take action it blows my mind. We had dinner with them a few weeks ago, and you know, what's your long-term plan? Our long-term plan is to plant a church that can stand on its own and that will multiply disciples without us having to be there. That's probably going to take 20 to 30 years. That's a lifetime commitment. 
And just because we're not going to an unreached people group does not mean that we aren't called to the same lifestyle here. So maybe we need to move into the ruins and invite people to be a part of the solution with us. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. But I would ask you to pray about that, to consider that. And while we do so, let's look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And let's respond with a time of praise this morning. Because he is worthy to be praised. He has restored us. He has reconciled us. And out of the overflow of our hearts for what we've seen in the truth of God's word, we want to respond to him. Father, we come to you this morning declaring that you are good. And you have shown that that your steadfast love endures forever. God, you are a merciful God. The very fact that we are alive and breathing this morning displays that truth. Father, we confess to you that while we exist to glorify you, there are so many times that, that we pursue our own glory. We desire to make ourselves known. Forgive us. Forgive us whenever we, we chase the, the things of this world rather than the, your glory everlasting. Father, we know that you are working all things for our good and for your glory. Will you help us to realize that truth? Whether we are in the ruins or whether we need to get in the ruins, will you align our hearts with yours? Father, we pray for an opportunity to make you known in our neighborhoods and to the nations. Will you use this church, this people, to bring reconciliation and restoration to our city? Will you use us to, to multiply disciples who are passionate about your glory and the mission that you've given your church? Jesus, we come to you right now in praise. We thank you for what you've done on our behalf. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.